when someone sees me and they see my brown skin, I don't want them to see, oh, he's probably good at basketball. I don't want them to see, oh, he probably raps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want them to see, see, oh, he was probably raised in the ghetto. Right. I, 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 I don't want them to see something that would then cause them to think that they know very specific things about my character or my upbringing or the kind of things that I'm you know, like or dislike. What I do want them to see and acknowledge is I am a descendant of a very particular thread and stream of human history called the Black American Experience. You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. so much free information at our fingertips and yet we don't utilize it. Yes. Like so much of what I've learned has either been through reading an actual physical book um, side by side with internet access. So when they mention something, I can do further research on something that the author hasn't gone into as much detail about. Now, now, what is this physical book you speak of? <laughs> do, people, do people really read these things anymore? You know, kind of to connect it to the Red Table Talk, yeah. the thing that I found kind of frustrating um, listening to it is how apparent or obvious that here is uh, Jada Pinkett Smith leading a conversation where it became very apparent, at least to me, in my opinion, that she really hadn't done the work. The work. Yeah. So let me set the table here. No pun intended for our listeners. So Frederick <laughs> and I both watched, um, and maybe you have as well, this red table talk that Jada Pinkett Smith does. And on it, she had Jane Elliott uh, as a mm-hmm. guest to discuss racism. And particularly she focused on race among women. And so they started out talking. It was her and her mother and her daughter. They were talking about just their different experiences as women of color with white women. And it was really, I really enjoyed that part because I felt like there was such an honesty, like her mom, I loved it. She was unapologetic. She Mm -hmm. was raw and real. And I just thought it was so awesome. But then Jane came on. And then, like you said, so I want to hear your thoughts on this. So, one, I also found it very interesting. And um, Jada's mom, I thought, was just really fascinating from the fact that she was way more honest, I feel, than maybe Jada was. I mean, I, I could be wrong, 
But I mean, I have, I have, you know, women in my family who are the same, same generation and I've heard their stories. So I understand where they're coming from as in terms of their experiences that have informed them, even though they don't know the history so much. I mean, your, your question was along the lines of, uh, of Jane and her coming in and doing the whole pseudo colorblind light thing. Oh, yeah. So let me, before we get into that, though, I thought it was interesting how they brought out the white woman, the director, to yeah. talk about just her experience mm-hmm. and, and the way she said, you know, I think she communicated something that many white people communicate. And yes. you guys have talked about this a little bit on your podcast, but they, they communicate this. I know there's something that's wrong and yes. I want to maybe do something about it. But I don't know what to do about it. And so they don't. And I loved when Jane came out because I think even for me, it kind of kicked me a little bit. Uh Came out and she said, can you read a book? You know, like if you can, (laughs) then you can actually understand what it's like to be a black woman or a black man in the U.S. Because they've they've written books and they've talked about it. And yeah. I really appreciated that. I was like, ooh, that is good. Yeah, I, I remember a, a, a senior pastor that I worked for when the Mike Ferguson thing came out, and I was kind of vocal about it. But even then, I was giving Officer Darren Wilson the benefit of the doubt that maybe he wasn't just a racist, that he was prejudiced and had stereotypes that he was operating out of, and it led to a tragic uh, event. Um, so I wasn't even calling Darren Wilson uh, a racist, right? I was kind of playing the middle of the road, so to speak, knowing my audience. And uh, I had somebody in the church go to the trouble of creating a anonymous email account to basically email me anonymously and tell me how I was wrong, how actually I was the one who was a racist. And they'd love to discuss this with me further as long as they can keep their anonymity because they were afraid that I would take it out on their family, me being the middle school youth pastor. Nice. Yeah. So I shared that with the executive team and, you know, they, they were apologetic. Sorry that, you know, I, I had to deal with that. And I'll never forget, you know, the senior pastor saying, Hey, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what it's like being black. And again, it's like, I held my tongue and I'm like, well, you can ask, but it never, never came out of my mouth. Yeah. This pastor is telling you that he doesn't know what it's like to be a black man. You know, at what Mm -hmm. point does it become the responsibility of each and every individual to learn what it's like without though, without making you a token voice, without going to people of color and saying, Hey, okay, so I want to learn about this racism thing. Educate me because that's not the role of people of color, right? That's where you go to books, you can go to YouTube videos, you can go to all sorts of different resources. But I caution a lot of my listeners in how they approach their friends of color on this topic, because not everybody wants to engage on that. And it's very emotionally draining. And I've said this before, I'm talking about something I'm passionate about, and I feel called to, but it's not my life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Wait in that. Yeah. Well, and and what you just described, you know, one of the things that just popped in my mind is one of the things that Sanchez and I 
mentioned on the episode about black consciousness, that whole part of the black experience is not being trusted to interpret your own experiences. Yes. And so one of the things that I find most exhausting is I can lay out all of this history. Because, for example, when the Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown came about, I used to share my personal experiences to racism and prejudice to try to open people's eyes. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I share less of my personal experiences and share more of history to help people understand how racism is a system, is a construct that has been created and left in place. So, for example, the Emancipation Proclamation abolished slavery, but it left white supremacy intact. All of that being said, I'll lay out this history and I'll have people quite literally say to me, well, I don't know if I agree with that. And I'm just like, dude, I didn't just share with you. I wasn't opining. I was laying out facts and information that you could very easily Google and see. So it's not, this isn't one of those like relative debates or discussions. Like I just laid out for you historical events. Now your interpretation of those historical events might be different, but like, think about all the work you have to do to interpret those events differently. And the reality is, is a lot of the events or things that I'm bringing up are things that they previously did not know about. It sounds like for you, you are a history guy. You believe that the entry point to greater understanding in part is history and knowledge, which I totally believe. Yeah. I also think because I am, you know, like the the communicator and what I like to do is figure out, well, what is blocking us from having greater understanding, greater dialogue? And it's it's just it's absolutely mind boggling to me how people just fall into this dehumanizing rhetoric without much thought. It's like they don't even realize they're doing it. Right. And and then on the flip side, you have someone like Jane Elliott, who is very learned and knows this history. And I don't know if they edited it out, but I just felt like she really skimmed over the history of race. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So she she came in with the fire. Right. <laughs> race is biologically false and socially politically real. And she kind of they show those videos of some of the work she did, which in the time that she was doing it was absolutely courageous. Oh. But I felt like the podcasts that they did or the video, the vlog that they did fell flat. I, I got really excited that, oh, gosh, she's going to start breaking down some of the history when she started mentioning the Spanish Inquisition, but she didn't go any further. So, again, and here I go, you know, dropping the big history thing. I mentioned it in passing, told people to do their, their work, but I'll describe it a little bit more here yeah. in the purpose of pod is the Papal Bull Statement of 1452. So 40 years before Columbus, quote, discovers the Americas, was a statement, a decree issued by the Catholic Church, which the Reformation hadn't happened yet. So the only church you have in existence is the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church. And it basically said that it was it was giving permission to 
the the Spanish and Portuguese patriarchs to send out uh, these conquistadors or these explorers to go and claim any land that they discovered where there wasn't already a quote-unquote Christian presence and claim it for a cross and crown. So they could claim it for the crown of countries that they represented in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it says quite explicitly that if you encounter these barbarians or these savages, you are to subdue them to perpetual slavery or basically exterminate them. So that's 40 years prior to Columbus coming to the Americas. So it's no wonder one of Columbus's first writings in his journal when he came to the Americas, and you can read it in the People's History of the United States in one of the opening chapters, that he is amazed that they had never seen a gun before, that they had all these different things and resources, and he was determined to know where the gold was, but he also was like, you know what? We're so much more advanced than these people, it would be very easy to subdue and enslave them and have them work for us. So, like, she she didn't go into that history. She didn't go into the history of the John Punch decision, which, of course, you, you had three runaway slaves because in colonial America, you had a system of indentured servants who had come from Europe through the Head Straight program, which basically set it up so that a landowner in colonial America would pay the way for some European to come to the Americas and work off, basically pay them back by working for them for seven years. And when the seven years were up, they'd get 50 acres in a mule. So they came to the Americas expecting it to be this land of opportunity and the working conditions were terrible. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you had these black servants or black slaves who had been sold to European colonizers who then brought them across the Atlantic to the Americas. Now these these slaves were in essence prisoners of war from Africa. But they brought them, they brought them here And even then, the rights of someone who was European and someone who was even a free black was different. That being said, you had these three slaves who were fed up with the working conditions, how terrible it was, and they decided to leave the Commonwealth of Virginia and flee to Maryland. Well, they were captured and brought back to face the courts. And in the decision, the judge determined or sentenced in the sentencing, he said, The first two men, one being a Dutchman, one being a Scotsman, will have four years added on to their original contract of seven years. Three to their owner or the man that they had the contract under, and one to the Commonwealth of Virginia. But John Punch, being a Negro, will serve his master, his owner, for the rest of his natural life. That is the first time that we have in writing a very specific distinction being made between Europeans and Negroes. So then they started to try to solidify this new race-based initiative of 
slavery by writing up all these different laws and codes. And so one of the first ones they made was this exception to a clause that said you could not enslave a Christian. So the first clause that they wrote was, well, the exception to this rule is if you're a Negro, because what they realized very early on, if you couldn't enslave someone else who was also a Christian or the member of the church, that all the Negroes had to do was become Christian. All they had to do was be evangelized and they could be set free. So that's why they made that first uh, exception. They also, because you had all of these indentured servants and slaves working side by side, and guess what? Some of them liked what the other one was working with, and they became intimate, and they got married, and they had children. And so that's where they had the first misconjugation laws, where they basically determined that if a baby was born to uh, basically a mixed-race baby was born to a uh, a woman who was quote unquote Negro, then it didn't matter if the um, the father was white because remember patriarchy is still in full force. Right. That it didn't matter that he his son his father was white. That child was still uh, uh, assigned the race of Negro. So there, that's where the one blood uh, one drop rule originates from, and all of these different rules that they wrote. Uh, race-based laws that they wrote culminated in the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705, where they also made a very clear distinction between white indentured servants and black slaves. And so, like, people who will say, well, the Irish were enslaved too. Well, yeah, but they were on a contract. They weren't in perpetual slavery. They were on a contract where they basically signed their name to come here. They were not prisoners of war. And once they finished their contract, they were given 50 acres and a mule. Right. And so for people who are listening to this amazing history lesson here, and I know you and I both hear this a lot from people. Well, what about today? What does this have to do with today? Well, again, it goes to something I said a second ago. When we abolished slavery, we didn't do anything to address uh, white supremacy. Right. So there's a book written by Carol Anderson called uh, White Rage, mm-hmm. The Truth Behind Our Racial Divide. And in that book, she basically lays out a history, a thorough history, because she's a professor, a history professor at Emory University of how every uh, movement that helped advance uh, the plight of of Black people and people of color in this country has been met with swift uh, white resistance. Mm. So in the case of the abolishing of slavery, the resistance uh, came in the form of Southern redemption and subsequently thus Jim Crow era and the lynching era. So you had you had black people who were given slavery, but they weren't given rights because even Abraham Lincoln did not believe in the equality of the races. Right. And again, this is where history comes in. We'll read some of the things that 
Abraham Lincoln said while he was running for Senate in 1858. And then, you know, overlay them with uh, what he was saying in 1861 and 1862. Right. Which people, but I thought he was homeboys with Frederick Douglass, which is why February is Black History Month in the first place, because both Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln's birthdays fall in the month of February. But could it be that maybe Frederick Douglass was Abraham Lincoln's exception to the rule? Historically, in the way the whole system was constructed of racism, is it is predicated on the principle of white supremacy, that whites are inherently superior to people of color. Like the whole creation of the now debunked science of eugenics, where we broke the world up into four different groups, Caucasian, uh, Mongoloid, uh, uh, Asian, uh, or not, not Asian, Aboriginal and Negro, like that all came out of a need to support what was already happening. And it was funded and supported by not only these governments that were highly invested in uh, colonization, European colonization and empire, but it was also supported by the church. Right. All that. Being said, um, you have people who own slaves, who genuinely cared for and loved their slaves that still believe that they were inherently superior to their slaves. So some of that literature that was in Maurice's barbecue is just that. It's saying why slavery was good for the Negro. In other words, black people are so inferior that they need us. And then you have people, right, who had maids all through segregated, you know, legal segregation America, who had black women in their homes, basically managing their homes and raising their kids who still believed, right, who treated them as family, who still believed that they were inherently superior to their black maids. And now today we have these conversations about race, right? Right. And we talk about the latest shooting of an unarmed black man by police officers. And what is the thing that is constantly, continually brought up to me by people who want to deny that it has anything to do with race? Why is it that they always bring up the murder rate in Chicago? Subconsciously, they are basically have been told that the murder rate of Chicago supports the idea of black savagery. It's amazing. I like I actually brought this conversation up to my family in Illinois over Thanksgiving. And and I gently inserted this question. I said, so why is it that Chicago is given such a bad rap on crime when it's yeah. in fact like the 10th or 12th most violent yes. city in the United States? And, and yes. they were like, well, Chicago is violent and it's full of crime and guns and the gun laws. You know, it depends on which narrative you subscribe yeah. to or believe or whatever. And so I just said again, I'm like, right. But statistically speaking, it is the like 12th. I think it's the 12th yep. um, deadliest city. 
And my city that I live in, Detroit, is at the top and Flint. And I'm like, why is the media perpetuating this picture and this story? And they're like, well, maybe it's because it's the large number of people in an event. And I'm like, no, you guys really need to think about and ask who is putting this narrative out there and why and what are they trying to communicate? And I didn't actually say it. But I was leading to the water, hopefully, of like, the reason they want this narrative is because it supports black on black violence, black crime, the, the, you know, the, the savagery, right? Like it just, it supports these narratives and it's amazing to me. It ultimately supports the age old theory of black inferiority. Yes. Focus primarily on Chicago because South Side Chicago is a predominantly black area. They could easily appeal to, like you said, Detroit or Flint or even St. Louis. Like there are 10 or 11 cities that are ranked ahead of Chicago. And Chicago has actually had a significant drop in just the last three years alone. Exactly. And, and people still fall back on, well, what about Chicago? What about Chicago? And it's like you're showing without even realizing it that you don't want to talk about it. But on top of that, and this is where some of my black friends struggle with my ability to have compassion on them in this. But I'm like, again, understanding this, their prejudice in this narrative that they've grown up with that they are unaware of is being played upon without actually explicitly calling on race beyond black on black crime, despite the fact that white on white crime is exactly the same rate as black on black crime or black on black murder and white on white murder is exactly the same because perhaps murder is a byproduct of proximity. So to circle back around to the red table and what Jane Elliott kind of missed, I I did have a sense that she was edited heavily. Yes. There are people who make decisions on what to edit. And I'm guessing Jada is in on that and has some oversight on that. And I was really kind of bummed with the way it felt very like, here, let's open this box. Let's talk about some really heavy truths and realities that we deal with as women of color. And then let's bring this woman on who essentially says, we're all part of one human race. And what I was worried about as a person who is in this work was propagating this idea again of being colorblind. It almost had that feel of like, we're all just one human race anyway. So let's just take that and run with it. Yeah, well, and I, I would say I would say this when it comes to colorblindness. One, it's just a false idea. Like we we see and acknowledge the physical distinctions, including color in all of the animal kingdom. So why are we going to refuse to acknowledge that we see color in one another? Also, again, uh, my, my, my wife is Scottish. Her accent is still thick. And when people hear her accent, the very first thing they do is try to figure out whether she is English, Scottish, or Irish. 
And when they find out that she's Scottish, then that's going to lead them to know certain things about her culture that she's from, which is different than saying they are going to be able to make all kinds of assumptions about her character because they can know her history without still knowing her and therefore engage in a personal relationship that is basically the thrust of it is to get to know that person to continue to be inquisitive and not make assumptions about that person and get to know their individual story and also their character so in the same way i want people to see my color because if they really have an understanding of our collective history as americans which goes back to the idea of collective memory there are certain things that they should know about my history as a black american that has nothing to do with my character That does not prevent them from taking the time of doing that sacred act of engaging an individual in being known by them and also getting to know the other. Right. What they're trying to say is, as well, I am not going to make assumptions about who you are as a person based on your color. And what they're failing to acknowledge is that they have been born into a racist society that has taught them implicit bias against certain kinds of people. And if they fail to acknowledge that they see color, then they are unable to undo the biases that they have, or at least acknowledge the biases and prejudices that they have so that then they don't operate out of those biases and prejudices that they have. So you said something interesting about Jada not having done the work before she did this show. Tell me a little bit more about your thoughts on that. I just felt like she really hadn't done the work of actually learning the history, learning the, the definitions of racism and prejudice and what made them different where the overlap is or even really looking at some of the historical answers to why, for example, white white women were oftentimes resented for dating black men, but you know, a white man entering into a black family was more embraced or accepted. Some of the, the tension that exists between black and and, and white women. But uh the 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 biggest thing is we kind of mentioned and have hit on is just that whole idea of being colorblind and that movement at the end of like, oh, we're we're all cousins. Right. Which I'm not saying that technically we aren't all cousins. What I'm saying is, is simply saying that we're all related does nothing to reconcile the history. Right. And it still doesn't it it washes over the fact that yes, while we our cousins, we were all raised in different houses with different customs and different cultures. Right. And the culture is something to be celebrated and acknowledged, not ignored or pretended to not exist. When someone sees me 
and they see my brown skin, I don't want them to see, oh, he's probably good at basketball. I don't want them to see, oh, he probably raps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want them to see, see, oh, he was probably raised in the ghetto. Right. I, 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 I don't want them to see something that would then cause them to think that they know very specific things about my character or my upbringing or the kind of things that I'm, you know, like or dislike. What I do want them to see and acknowledge is I am a descendant of a very particular thread and stream of human history called the Black American Experience. I want them to know that I have a connection through ancestry to that history and story. Anything else, I want them to actually do the sacred act of engaging me as an individual and the process of discovering and finding out what is unique about me as an individual, just the same way that I'm going to do the same thing with them. Hmm. So, you know, meeting my, my wife, wife's from Scotland. Like I want to, I want to be aware of the unique historical difference distinctions between Scotland, England, Ireland, and Wales. Mm. At the same time, I want to be very careful not to just assign to her these tropes or caricatures of Scottish culture that demean, dehumanize, or basically give me an excuse to not fully engage her relationally for the purpose of discovering another person and getting to know another person, like their unique story. That is really interesting because um, I haven't really thought of it in that way before. And a lot of times when I get into conversations with people who are poo-pooing anti-racism work and just the idea that racism is still prevalent or an issue. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times the, the, the war cry of white people is the individual, the individual, the individual. And they will argue that when you acknowledge race, you are dehumanizing. I've heard this. I don't know if you've heard this before, but I actually run into this a lot. And mm -hmm. I used to, when I subscribed to the colorblind idea in the 90s or whatever, when I was a kid, um, mm -hmm. I, I used to believe that in a sense. But what you're saying here and what you're capturing is that it is through this colorblind ethic that we're actually really dehumanizing people. Yes. And that the way to connect with people and to really dig deep and move beyond these tropes is to enter into the uniqueness of each individual and their life experience. And in doing so, you have to acknowledge the the color of our skin, 
in in our race and ethnicity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it, is it, powerful. Yeah, and and I mean, thank you. And it it also the the desire of some people to do that and look at it that way that you described of how somehow acknowledging race dehumanizes people. That's really easy to say when you represent majority culture. Amen. I mean, what what they don't realize is that they are promoting this idea of the majority culture as the superior culture or the one that everyone should aspire to without actually naming it. Because have you ever noticed how all of the people of color who trumpet that horn have 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 assimilated really well into the majority culture mm-hmm. to the point that oftentimes they don't acknowledge their own culture from where their ancestors come from. Yeah, absolutely. Which for us as black Americans, like the damage is done is irrevocable because we can't even trace our heritage back to a specific country in the continent. Right. Like we're, we're, we are totally cut off from the history, the heritage and the culture of the continent of Africa, let alone, you know, specific countries within Africa. Like you have people here in Italy who can actually, who are Italian, who can trace back their heritage to a specific village in Italy. Right. I, I, I can't, I can't do that. I don't, I don't have that. No, they're not told they need to let go of their heritage and their connection to, you know, a certain region in Italy. Mm-hmm. But why is it that I'm told that I need to let mine go? Because part of my history is an indictment on their history. Absolutely. I, I, I am a constant three-dimensional reminder of the dark side of European history. I think it's so important to sit in tension and sitting in the tension of people's experience and our truth. But this indictment, it's so profound. It is an indictment. There's no mystery why um, immediately some people jump to, well, like I, I, I took no part in slavery. I wasn't, I, I, I've never owned a slave. Nobody said you did. Right. So why are you jumping to that line of defense? Like I, 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 you know, I didn't even say that. Again, I'm, I'm talking about history. You obviously have a connection to uh, um, that history, which betrays your own thinking in identifying yourself with a particular race. Otherwise, if you believed in this colorblindness thing, you would never get offended when these historical traumas are brought up. That is a really, really good point because you do find that a lot of people do get offended by that. So my guest today, Cedric Lundy, Token Confessions is his podcast. Look it up, subscribe, listen. You're going to learn a ton. Thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. I think we have enough material where I'm probably going to release like four different <laughs> snippets but tell sanchez not to worry he's way better a co-host than i am <laughs> oh, thanks for having me on yeah thanks for coming on 